0: If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 19. Ezekiel chapter 19. As we've seen in our study of Ezekiel, from, chapters, from chapter 12 to chapter 24, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel makes the case that the sins of Israel, in fact, are deserving of the terrible judgment that will come their way. But there are different ways of expressing this. It isn't simply, you deserve this, you deserve this, you deserve this. There are different models, if you wish, different modes of speaking and of expressing this truth. In chapter 12, it was with an acting out sign. That is that Ezekiel was told that he was to pack his bag as always, he was going into exile. And then he was to make a hole in the wall of his house. And then at nighttime, he was to go out. And he was to cover his eyes so he couldn't see where he was going. And then and walk a, a long distance, basically to illustrate the coming exile for Israel. In chapter 15, there's the parable of the vine. In chapter 16, the story of the abandoned baby, found by a traveler who took care of her, who provided her with everything, entered into covenant with her, married her, and then she decided to prostitute herself with anyone who came by. Last week, we saw the riddle or parable or allegory of the two eagles, And then in chapter 18, a sermon of sorts about individual responsibility. Today, we find in chapter 19, a lament, and in chapter 20, a history lesson. If you look at the beginning of chapter 19, the first verse, take up a lament concerning the princes of Israel. A lament or lamentation is a passionate expression of grief, often in music, poetry or song form. The grief is most often born of regret or mourning. The lament was, in fact, a Hebrew poetic form. So what we have in chapter 19 is, in fact, a poem. The importance of the lament is seen in the fact that one of the books of the Old Testament is called Lamentations, and it is five laments, five poems in which the prophet Jeremiah laments over what will happen, what has happened to Jerusalem. The book of Psalms is made up of seven different kinds of psalms. One of them is a lament, and the very first psalm, which Psalms 1 and 2 are introductory. Psalm number 3, the first psalm, is in fact the psalm of lament. What we find here. In chapter 19 is a lament about three of Israel's kings. They're called, uh, Ezekiel refers to them as princes, but they are three kings. The first is Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah. He was killed by the king of Egypt, Necho II. He reigned for three months in 609 BC, and then he was taken captive to e- Egypt, and there he died. The second king that is mentioned is Jehoiakim, who is the son of Jehoiakim, and Ezekiel skips over Jehoiakim and goes to his son, he reigned three months as well. This is in 597 BC. He was taken to Babylon and there he died. The third king is Zedekiah, who is also a son of Josiah. He was the last of the kings of the Davidic dynasty, virtually ending the dynasty. Ezekiel is between number two and three. Zedekiah has not yet happened. That's what this is all about. Judgment is coming and you are deserving of what will happen. But it has not yet happened. So if you wish, the first two are historical and the third one is prophetic. What is the point of this lament, this poem of lamentation? It is that for all their power and their might, the kings of Israel fell victim to the judgment of God on their lives. In 2 Kings 23 and 24, as it tells us about these three kings, we read this, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, if they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, why is Ezekiel mourning them? Why is there this lamentation? Well, Ezekiel... Recognizes where we may not, that these are actually the descendants of King David. And a promise had been made to David that his line would continue. And now it looks as though his line will not. They disappear into exile, one into Egypt, the other into Babylon. And Ezekiel is quite emotional about this. He is quite sorrowful. By the way, God had made a, a covenant to David. Second Samuel 7.16 Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, it looks like forever has a different meaning than what God means because it looks like it will be ending with these kings. This chapter is not to taunt the kings. It's not like, yeah, you guys are bad guys. You're getting what you deserve. There is profound grief. It is a lament. Let's read verses 2, 3, and 4 about Jehoahaz. By the way, the kings are not mentioned by name, but people know who Ezekiel is talking about. And say, what a fierce lioness was your mother among the lions. She lay down among the young lions and reared her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs and he became a strong lion. He learned to tear the prey and he devoured men. The nations heard about him and he was trapped in their pit. They led him with hooks to the land of Egypt. I don't know if you know this, but there used to be lions in Palestine until the end of the 13th century, the end of the last crusade. So let's say around 295, somewhere in there. There were still lions were indigenous to Palestine. We think of lions as being something found only in Africa. Hebrew has five different words to describe lions. Three of them are found in verse number two, Uh, a lioness, a lion, young lions, and then you have also the cubs. Lions were part of the Davidic imagery, like eagles are for the United States, the lion was for Israel. And it goes back to when Jacob blessed his sons, you are a lion's cub, O Judah, You return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So Jacob's basically saying the monarchy is going to be in Judah, and their sign will be that of the lion. In verse number two it says, it refers to a lioness who... Gave birth to her kings. And and who is this lioness? It's Israel itself. It's the nation. That out of this nation we have these kings emerging. He only reigned for three months. And so we have a brief description. But the point is not so much about Jehoahaz. If you read verses 2, 3, and 4 again, it is the glory of the Davidic line, the house of David, the glory. They are the lion. Then verses 5 through 9, this is about Jehoiakim. It skips his dad and goes to Jehoiakim. Verse 5, when she saw her hope unfulfilled, her expectation gone, she took another of her cubs and made him a strong lion. He prowled among the lions, for he was now a strong lion. He learned to tear the prey, and he devoured men. He broke down their strongholds and devastated their towns. The land and all who were in it were terrified by his roaring. Then the nations came against him. Those from regions round about they spread their net for him, and he was trapped in their pit. With hooks they pulled him into a cage, and brought him to the king of Babylon. They put him in prison, so his roar was no longer was heard no longer on the mountains of Israel. As I said, uh, they skip his father Jehoiakim and go to Jehoiakim, who was only 18 years old when he became king, and reigned for only three months. As one writer put it, his reign was brief and pathetic. And then he was taken into exile, which was long and wearisome. He was in prison for 37 years. But there was a reprieve. And that's a recurring theme in chapters 12 through 24, if you look for it. And that is of God's grace, that God is gracious even to those who have sinned. Let me read to you from 2 Kings 25. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. Ezekiel doesn't know this yet because it's 37 years. When Ezekiel writes this, it's the seventh year because Ezekiel went into exile along with Jehoiakim. So it's going to be another 30 years. But we live after the fact and we know of God's grace that in fact Jehoiakim was Released from prison and given a place of honor. The third part of this lament is about Zedekiah. And from here, the the metaphor changes from that of lion to that of a vine. The vine as a symbol of Israel is used by Ezekiel. We've seen that. It's used by Isaiah. It was used by Jesus. Look at his parables about the vineyard. He's talking about the people of Israel. Like a lioness, the vine represents the nation of Israel as mother. She produced these kings. So, Ezekiel 19, verse 10. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard. Planted by the water, it was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant water. Its branches were strong, fit for a a ruler's scepter. It towered high above the thick foliage, conspicuous for its height and for its many branches. But it was uprooted in fury and thrown to the ground. The east wind made it shrivel. It was stripped of its fruit. Its strong branches withered and fire consumed them. Now it is planted in the desert in a dry and thirsty land. Fire spread from one of its main branches and consumed its fruit. No strong branch was left on it fit for a ruler's scepter. There is glory in the Davidic line, in the Davidic dynasty. But there is also judgment. And for this, there should be mourning. So if you look, I did not read the last sentence in verse number 14. This is a lament and is to be used as a lament. In other words, this is not a small thing. This is not a trivial thing. There should be genuine grief over the things that God has done and will do to the house of David. I think we are more inclined to say you got exactly what you deserve. This is not what we find. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is in Luke 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus' lament over the city of Jerusalem, who in fact will suffer God's judgment, and one would say, Rightly so. They deserved it. And yet Jesus mourns over them. We shouldn't be surprised by this, because if you look at the last verse of chapter 18, which comes before this lament, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the sovereign Lord. Somehow in our twisted thinking we think that God delights in killing people. We sort of like it when he does the people who we think deserve it. When innocent people die we're like, God, what's up? Why, why did you do that? But when he kills those we think are deserving we do not shed a tear and in this we are wrong. Now we come to chapter 20. No longer a lament. Now we have a history lesson. Look, if you would, at the first four verses, because this sets the stage for what will follow. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day, some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and they sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Have you come to inquire of me? As surely as I live, I will not let you inquire of me, declares the sovereign Lord. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Then confront them with the detestable practices of their fathers. So, somehow at this point, Ezekiel is recognized as a prophet. He's been a prophet for about two years because it's in the fifth year of the exile that this happens, that he has the vision of the Lord. So now they recognize him as a prophet. So they come to him for him to ask God. What they want to ask God, we're not told. I I think we will find out what it is later on, but it's never spelled out what it is they wanted Ezekiel to inquire about the Lord or from the Lord. The response, however, is negative. Even before they ask, God's like, don't ask. Don't, don't even, you think, you think I'm going to allow you to ask me, to inquire of me? Like, don't, don't even bother. In verse number four, twice, we hear the phrase, will you judge them? That is, make the case. Make the case before them. And what we find here is a history lesson. There's no allegory here. There's no poetry. There's no parable it's straight history. And Ezekiel is told, confront them with the detestable practices of their fathers. If you've been with us, you're thinking, wait a minute, this, something's wrong here, because in chapter 18, the principle was that a sin uh, son is not responsible for the sins of his father, and vice versa. father's not responsible for the sins of his son. So suddenly it seems like God is saying, yeah, make a case and tell them about the detestable practices of their fathers. Yes, he is to tell them. He is not to say, because of what they did, you are suffering. He's simply making a case, this is what they did. Hopefully, it'll be clear as we go along. What we find in this chapter is that the review of the history of Israel is the answer to their inquiry. What they want to ask God the answer is given in this history lesson. They are in fact quite impertinent in coming to God. And if they would just remember, if they'd read their history of their people, I think they would change their mind. So it's a history of Israel. The first five verses, I'm sorry, yeah, verses five through nine, Deal with Israel and Egypt, and this is an eye-opener. Look, if you would, beginning of verse number five, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of the house of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them I would bring them out of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. At this point, we're okay. We we know this part of the story. Verse 7, and I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt but for the sake of my name, I did what would keep, them, keep it from being profaned, in the eyes of the nations they lived among and in whose sight I revealed myself to the Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt. Things to consider about these verses. First of all, this is the first, this is the only time in which we find the word chose found in the book of Ezekiel, that God chose Israel. And it's interesting that God's choosing of Israel doesn't at least as it's told here, doesn't begin with Abraham or Isaac, or even Jacob, who was renamed Israel. It's 400 years later, after they've been slaves in Egypt, that God chooses them to be His people. He meets with Abraham in the burning bush, and he reveals himself as I am who I am. that is Jehovah or Yahweh. A promise is made that he would take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. So far we're okay, but then we find out that they were actually idol worshipers, that the Israelites in Egypt were worshiping false gods. Um, somehow, I don't know where this happened, we th- thought or we, be- we think of them as being these wonderful people, these people who worship God in Egypt, and they are suffering terribly. Oh, the poor Israelites, they're being persecuted because they worship the false, uh, the true God. No, actually, they worship the same gods as the Egyptians. That's quite remarkable. It is quite remarkable. So God tells them, okay, I am the Lord, your God. Get rid of these other gods. Get rid of these images. And they would not. They rebelled against God. When you look at the story of Exodus, yeah, the Egyptians are the bad guys. The Israelites are the good guys. They worship God. They worship idols. No, they're both bad. They both worship idols. And God considered just doing away with the Israelites. That's a lot of people. When they leave Egypt, there are 600,000 of them, at least. And yet, in his grace, he brings them out of Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt. So again, the picture we have in our mind oftentimes is good Israelites, oppressed Israelites, worshipers of God, and God says, I'm going to rescue you. And that's not the picture at all. We have Israelites. They're not good people. They are worshiping false gods and the idols that the Egyptians worship and God graciously brings them out. He delivers them from slavery, and that is a wonderful thing. Slavery is oppression, it is a terrible human evil. But more than that, he is delivering them out of a pagan society. And he wants them to get rid of their paganism, and yet they rebel against him. For the sake of his name, he delivered them. So the Exodus is not the story of the deliverance of good people. It is the deliverance, it is the rescue of people who were not worthy of being rescued. And the Lord did it out of grace. I don't know if this illustrates the point, but when I was 11 years old, I almost drowned. We had been in the States for a year. We were on our way back to the Philippines. And the church um, where we visited, they were having a camping trip and they invited me to go along. And so I did. And it was below uh, Lake Mead. uh, And one of the nights we were there, we slept on the sandbar. They had let water out. And so the water had risen. And the current was much stronger than we realized. And somehow I got caught in the current and was being carried down the river. And I remember seeing someone running down the sandbar, and he jumped in to rescue me. And what I remember very much is, as much as I wanted to be rescued, I didn't help the process. I just, I just was just clawing at him. In fact, I remember when we got out, his T-shirt, the neck was like, had been totally stretched. I needed to be rescued. I wanted to be rescued. But I didn't help in the process at all. The Israelites are tired of being slaves. They want to be rescued. Yeah, but they're not willing to give up their gods. It's quite remarkable. And when you think about it, the Exodus in the scripture is the best illustration of redemption, it's the best example of salvation. And it should say something to us because oftentimes we think, well, you know, I wasn't that bad of a person. And I gave my heart to Jesus, and now I'm a Christian. Like, no, if, if you want to do the Exodus motif, you are a, re- a rebel. You worship false gods, and God, in his grace, rescued you. The second part of the story is Israel in the wilderness. And part of this we're familiar with. Look, if you would, um, in verse 10. Therefore I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the desert. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws. For the man who obeys them will live by them. And I, also I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us, so they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. Yet the people of Israel rebelled against me in the desert. They did not follow my decrees, but rejected my laws. Although the man who obeys them will live by them, and they utterly desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and destroy them in the desert. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep them from being profane, keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight i brought them out also with uplifted hand i swore to them in the desert that i would not bring them into the land i had given them a land flowing with milk and honey most beautiful of all lands because they rejected my laws and did not follow my decrees and desecrated my sabbaths for their hearts were devoted to their idols yet i looked on them with pity and did not destroy them or put an end to them in the desert This is again familiar to us. Delivered out of Egypt through the exodus. The giving of the law. The gift of the law at Sinai. And specifically the giving of the Sabbath. A day of rest. In many cultures there was no such thing as a day off. A day of rest. And God says you work six days and the seventh day is holy. You are not to work. But this generation. The generation. The adults that came out of Egypt. Rebelled against God. They rejected his law. And they desecrated the Sabbaths. Like got to work seven days a week. Got to work. Forget this. Not working on the Sabbath. Their hearts in verse number 16. Were devoted to idols. But out of pity. God did not put an end to them in the desert. You may remember the story that. God was ready to take him into the promised land, and the the report came back. There are giants in the land. They're like, we can't go. There are giants. And God says, okay, everybody from the age of 20 and over, you're going to die in the wilderness. And the younger generation, they get to go into the promised land. Well, now in verse number 18, we're talking about this younger generation. And again, to me, this is quite an eye-opener. I said to their children in the desert, do not follow the statutes of your fathers or keep their laws or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not follow my decrees. They were not careful to keep my laws, though the man who obeys them will live by them, and they desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the desert, but I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Also with uplifted hand, I swore to them in the desert that I would disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries because they had not obeyed my laws but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths and their eyes lusted after their father's idols. I also gave them over to statutes that were not good and laws they could not live by. I let them become defiled through their gifts, the sacrifice of their firstborn that I might fill them with horror So that they would know that I am the Lord. This is surprising. Because the older generation, yeah, we know they were bad. They, They refused to go into the promised land. But the younger generation, surely they would have learned from their parents' example. They're the good generation, the greatest generation. No, they're just like their parents, they're just like their folks. They worship idols. They do not keep the Sabbath. And they follow laws that God did not give to them. This generation and succeeding generations were scattered among the nations. God allows them to become defiled by their sacrifices. Can you imagine offering your firstborn as a human sacrifice? And part of God's judgment is he allowed them to do this. But he withheld his hand for the sake of his name. Then we have Israel and Canaan. And here's only three verses. I think this might be more familiar to people. You know, Israel goes into Canaan. They conquer a lot of it, not all of it, like they're supposed to. And they be, rather than influencing the culture, they are influenced by the culture. Verse 27, therefore, son of man, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In this also your fathers blaspheme me by forsaking me. When I brought them into the land I had sworn to give them, and they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they, made, they offered their sacrifices, made offerings that provoked me to anger, presented their fragrant incense, and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, what is this high place you go to? It is called Bama to this day. If you've read the book of Judges, this is not surprising at all. Time after time, God gives them into the hands of their enemies. They cry out to God, help us, we're your people. And he sends a judge and delivers them. And then within a generation, they fall back on their old ways. You will notice, however, in this section, there is not a word of grace. Not a word of pity or of mercy or of the Lord's patience. Now we come to verses 30 to 39. And here, I think, is the answer to the question, what was it that they wanted to ask God? Why did they come to Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord? Look at verse 30. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Will you defile yourselves the way your fathers did and lust after their vile images? When you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your sons in the fire, you continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Am I to let you inquire of me, O house of Israel? As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. You want to ask me? No, I will not let you inquire of me. Verse 32, you say, we want to be like the nations, like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone. But what you have in mind will never happen. See, after the history lesson that Ezekiel has given them, this is the word to the house of Israel, to the elders of the exile who have asked. And the, the question God asked him is, you want to be like your ancestors? You want to be like those guys? The guys who came before you? You want to defile yourself the way that they did? You want to do that and then you want to come and inquire of me. You want to have it both ways. You want to worship the true God and ask him for answers, but you want to worship false gods too. And should the Lord allow it? Absolutely not. He will not allow... And he will not allow them to ask him. People who want to be like everybody else. Verse 33. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will rule over you with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered... With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm With outpoured wrath I will bring you into the desert of the nations And there face to face I will execute judgment upon you As I judged your fathers In the desert of the land of Egypt So I will judge you Declares the sovereign Lord I will take note of you As you pass under my rod And I will bring you into the bond Of the covenant I will purge you Of those who have who revolt and rebel against me Although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says go and serve your gods, every one of you. But afterward, you will surely listen to me and no longer profane my holy name with your gifts and idols. In a word, judgment is coming, just like it happened in the wilderness, after Israel was rescued out of Egypt. As I judged your fathers in the desert of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you. The language here is an echo of what happened in Exodus. That includes deliverance. God, in fact, did deliver Israel out of Egypt, but that first generation died in the wilderness. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the one who is gracious. And his graciousness is seen in the next five verses. Verses 40 to 44. For on my holy mountain, the high mountain of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord, there in the land the entire house of Israel will serve me, and there I will accept them. There I will require your offerings and your choice gifts along with all your holy sacrifices. I will accept you as fragrant incense when I bring you out of the, from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will show myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the land I had sworn with uplifted hand to give to your fathers. There you will remember your conduct and all the actions by which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves for all the evil you have done. You will know that I am the Lord. When I deal with you for my name's sake not acor- And not according to your evil ways And your corrupt practices O house of Israel declares the sovereign Lord For all their sins For all their sins The Lord will still gather them From the nations to serve him And there they will repent They will remember what they have done And they will loathe themselves For their worship of false gods They will know that he is the Lord And this, I am convinced, is the answer to the inquiry of the elders who come to Ezekiel. They want Ezekiel's approval. They want God's approval to have it both ways. God, we're still going to be your people. We're the chosen people, right? Remember, this is the only time in in the book of Ezekiel that Ezekiel uses the word chose. You chose us. So we're your people, right? But we want to be like everybody else. We want to follow the gods that they follow. God didn't tolerate this in the past. What makes them begin to imagine that he will tolerate it now? They're in exile precisely because they've tried to have it both ways. And now in exile, they're going to ask God, can we have it both ways? Can we be your people and worship false gods? The answer is absolutely not. By the way, I think we might be a little hypocritical, pharisaical in condemning these people when in fact we say we are Christians, we are the people of God, and yet our motivations, our attitudes, the reason we do the things we do are just like everyone else. We serve the false gods just like everyone else while at the same time claiming to be the people of God. So what are we to take from these two chapters? Chapters 19 and 20. First of all, there is a place for lament. That we should mourn the sins and the destinies of others. When we get to chapter 33, we will read, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's remarkable, isn't it? Because we would think if anyone had a right to, if anyone knew what was right, it would be God and that God should be doing a little happy dance when wicked people are killed, when they die. He takes no pleasure in this. We have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, the people who in a few days are going to put him to death, and he knows that. And yet he weeps and he mourns for them. Living when and where we do, where everything seems to be about politics, oftentimes we are driven by anger, hatred, perhaps, uh, and no grief. We we don't seem to grieve, and we should. The second thing we should take from this, and this is from chapter 20, is that we need to re-examine our view of the exodus. We need to re-examine our view of our salvation, how we became the people of God. We tend to think, and this works out good for us, you know, that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, but they were really good people. They were really good people. And that's why God delivered them, because, you know, really good people need to be rescued. They deserve to be rescued out of slavery slavery is a terrible human evil but that's not the case at all after four centuries of living in Egypt they had assimilated they worshipped the gods of the Egyptians if you doubt that why is it when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he was there for a long time and they're like he's not coming back we need to make a god and what did they do they made a golden calf where did they come up with that well, that's an Egyptian god. That's, that's one of the gods that the Egyptians worship. Okay? <laughs> they had bought into the paganism that surrounded them. So when God came through Moses to deliver them, it wasn't, you guys have been really good now for four centuries, and you deserve to get, a, you know, get out of jail free card. I'm going to deliver you. Not at all. Yes, they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. But they have totally bought into the world system that surrounds them. And they are rebels. And for those of us who are the Lord's people, that is our story as well. But for some of us, it's a struggle. Because, particularly if we were raised in a Christian home, if we became a Christian at an early age, we're like, I didn't do bad things. I wasn't an evil person. Uh, We are the children of Adam. We are, by definition, sinners. And God rescued us out of our rebellion. But I think perhaps it is the second part of the story that we need to look at. God rescues us, We become his children, but then we want to be like everybody else. So God rescues Israel out of paganism, but they still want to be pagans. And God saved us by his grace. We are now his children. We are in the kingdom of light. Yeah, but we kind of like everything we see around us. And we buy into it. In that sense, we want it both ways. We want to be the children of God, chosen by God, his children, his family, but then we want to do what we want, be like everyone else. The Exodus is a story of redemption. It is people who are in rebellion, who are delivered by God out of their rebellion, out of slavery, and what do they do? Well, he delivers them and he gives them law. This is how you're supposed to live. This is the way to live a healthy lifestyle. The Sabbath, you need to take a day off every, every week. Seventh day, it's holy to God. This is how you're supposed to live. And what did they do? Yeah, nah, we don't like that. God is gracious though. And with uplifted hand, he swore for the sake of his name. He would be gracious to them. And he has been gracious to us. Far more gracious than we deserve. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's strange how we take your holy word and we read it through lenses that make us look good. So when we think of Exodus as a story of salvation, we imagine that the people who were saved through the Exodus were good people. And so we imagine that when you saved us, we were, we were actually pretty good people. From Ezekiel, we learned that in fact, the Israelites were pagans. They had totally bought into the surrounding culture, worshiping the gods of Egypt. And when you graciously delivered them instead of destroying them, and you showed them how they were supposed to live, you gave them your law. They still didn't want to do that. They went their own way. And so in the wilderness you have a chance to start over with a new generation And they do the exact same thing. And it's a story of humanity. We want to go our own way. But we want whatever gifts, whatever grace you might show us along the way. Like the elders in exile, we want to ask you, or maybe we just assume, that we can be your people and pagans at the same time that we can be your people and yet be driven by wrong ambition, by a desire for money, by a desire for fame, that we can cut corners ethically because we want to get ahead because that's what everyone wants to do. How gracious you were to Israel, how gracious you are to us. Spirit of God, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to see how wonderful the grace of salvation, the gift of salvation is. It was not the rescuing of good people. The res- it was the rescue of the children of Adam. And even now, as we are your children, we still go astray. Correct us Instruct us May we not be like the elders of exile Wanting to have it both ways Spirit we ask that you would drive these truths Home to our hearts May we think on them in the coming days Not be hearers of the word only But doers as well Thank you for bringing us together on this day to worship you at the beginning of a new week. We remember uh, those in Komunal who suffer with brownouts daily, this being the hottest time of the year. Provide for them. Keep them in good health and in safety. And we pray for Jeff, for his health, Give him, give the doctor's wisdom as to what should be done. May he know that, in fact, you care for him deeply. We thank you for your love and your grace. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.